Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed professional counselor with over a decade of experience. And this is Trisha, and I have been trying since 2016 to get a shiny Gyarados, and it just hasn't happened yet. What is a shiny Gyarados? A shiny Gyarados is an evolution from the Magikarp in the game Pokemon. And I play Pokemon Go with my nephew, and I'm on level 39, and still no shiny Gyarados for me. Oh, is that... It's abnormal? A, yes. It's like, well, I don't know if it's abnormal, but the shiny Gyarados is a red color instead of a blue color, and they're really hard to find, apparently, because I have been trying for years. And right now, there's like a whole bunch of them out there because it's some sort of like festival, and I still didn't get one. Well, maybe you will need to hunt on different grounds. First world problems right here. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Well, welcome to Addicted to Murder, like Courtney said, BTK part four. Four. We're going to really try to get him done today, but we have a. If we get it done today, it's going to be a really long episode, so it might be five. We did not want this to go this long, but he just keeps going. He doesn't stop talking, so there is just so much to say about him. Right. There's And there's so much like other stuff that we can find and documentaries, and you can watch like his whole um, court, you know, stuff. I've lost the word. Yeah, the for whole that, proceeding. But, yeah, everything. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot. Anyways. Yeah. But before we get into him, I uh, just want to give a shout out, as always, to our fans, our listeners, um, anyone who has interacted with us on social media. Thank you. We appreciate you. Um, and if you still don't know what our social media is, um, you can find us at addicted to m podcast on Instagram, at uh, addicted to murder podcast on Facebook or Twitter. Or you can send us an email at addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you, Courtney. And it is um, question segment time. And it is my question today. And I'm just looking outside right now, and it's just a beautiful day. Um, And so it reminds me of summer. We both work um, kind of with the school year calendar. So we get a lot of days off in the summer. So Courtney, what is your favorite thing to do in the summer? Um, I'd say my favorite thing to do in the summer is just really be outside. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether that's like going on a hike or just going to a park and hanging out or going to the beach or the river I just like to be outside I love swimming like there's um, a very clean river we live in Oregon so we're really lucky to have really clean rivers and lakes to swim in and there's one near my house that's warm and clear and has giant swimming holes and I like to go down there and take my dog and my floaty and just swim and float all day and then when you get out and you smell like sunscreen and water it's just the best yeah and then you can hang out like on the edge and yeah have snacks oh yeah snacks and sunbathe Mm -hmm. you always have to eat when you swim I feel like you get so hungry in the sun when you're swimming or at least I do like I'm starving swimming burns a lot of calories which is a good thing yeah so cool all right well do you want to recap a bit before we get into part four yes so just to catch everybody up Um, At the end of our last episode, we ended up where Dennis Rader, a.k.a. BTK, had just um, killed his sixth victim, who was 
Nancy Fox. And he was so impatient about wanting to see news stories about it that he made an anonymous call himself to report it to the police. Right, which is kind of shows you how he uh, is going to be going forward. So, all right, well, we're going to dive right in. So after the murder of Nancy Fox, Dennis continued to live his life as he normally did. He was working on a poem about Shirley Vian or Vian, um, who was victim number six. So actually, I think Nancy Fox was number seven. Yes. Okay. Um, and he wanted that. He was working on it for a long time, and he wanted that to be sent to the media. Um, on January 31st of 1978, he mailed the completed poem, which he had written on an index card to the Wichita Eagle, and that was a newspaper there, and he had signed it, BTK. But there was no new news coverage on his dumb poem that he had worked so hard on. And this really angered him, and he decided to write a strongly worded letter with what I'm sure was terrible drawing of a female victim bound and gagged and nooses with his self-given minotaur name, BTK. Um, This package was sent to a TV station instead of a newspaper, and a receptionist there opened this letter and package in February. I'm not going to read the poem because it sucks, and he doesn't need any more intention than he already is getting. But if you guys want, I'm sure you could look it up and find it. It really was lame. I was going to put it in here, but I was like, Um, But I will read a little bit of his two-page, strongly worded letter. Quote, I find the newspaper not writing about the poem of Van unassuming. A little paragraph would have enough. I gnome, it's not the news media fault. The police chief keep things quiet. And doesn't let the pubic <laughs> know they're a psycho running around loose, strangling mostly women. There's seven in the ground. Who will be next? How many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Again, he sent that with like terrible wording and everything like that. He says he did it on purpose, but it could just be how he writes. I don't know. But uh, Courtney, there it is. All he really, really wants is attention. Yeah. I mean, as we brought up last week, you know, Dennis is kind of a textbook narcissist. He needs attention and admiration from others in order to feel good about himself, but at the same time has an overinflated sense of his own skills and importance. So it would have been extremely frustrating for him to have shared something that he felt so proud of, like his poem, and to have gotten absolutely no response. You know, like, no response is worse than a negative reaction. Which we've talked about with several of these killers, um, especially when they're kids. He's acting like a little kid. Like, I'm going to make you pay attention to me even if it's a bad response. Like, I just need some of that attention. Right. Mm -hmm. So he then goes on to really push home the fact that he wants a cool nickname. So remember, he had kind of given himself a nickname last episode, and he had told the police that he was BTK, But I think he now felt that since there wasn't any attention attached to that name, maybe he needed something cooler. So he did offer this. P.S. How about some name for me? It's time. Seven down and many more to go. I like the following. How about you? And these were some of his suggestions. The BTK Strangler. Wichita Strangler. Poetic Strangler. The Bond Age Strangler. I think he was trying to say bondage. Or Psycho. (laughs) The Wichita Hangman, the Wichita Executioner, the Grot Phantom, and the Asphyxiator. What do you think, Gordon? I have nothing to say other than to laugh and laugh and laugh. 
I mean, the the Garot Phantom. I mean, that one was kind of clever, right? Because sure. you know, the Garot's like that when they use that object to strangle, mm-hmm. like a stick or something right, to make it. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, the Asphyxiator. The Asphyxiator. It kind of sounds like what they would name one of the villains in, like, the Disney movie, right. The Incredibles. Oh, totally. Or even a Batman villain. Yeah. I mean, like, something silly. Exactly. So the letter continues and just goes on about details of his victims and how there will be more and to take him seriously and how he wants to be like other killers he's studied, studied, including Ted from the West Coast and Jack the Ripper. So Ted from the West Coast is obviously Bundy, but that's what he called him. He especially had a fondness for H.H. Holmes. Uh, We will get to H.H. Holmes soon, promise, Um, and really wanted to have a murder castle of his own with secret rooms where he could bind his victims and hang them and do whatever he pleased without worrying about being caught. He also would have liked a private place like this so he could continue to dress in women's clothes without being caught. Paula, his wife, had at least on two occasions caught Dennis in bondage and in drag at home, and it really freaked her out she was really upset and she even looked into therapy and self-help books um, to understand if Dennis was a danger to her or the kids Um, but eventually she calmed down and the subject was dropped but Dennis did reflect on a time when he performed bondage on his own and he was wearing women's clothing and he and he did it outside like in the woods so Paula couldn't catch him and he got a really bad sunburn so he had bra strap sunburn lines and he had to hide those for like a couple weeks so that she wouldn't see him so dennis and paula had their second child a daughter named carrie lynn in 1978 and as a side note carrie has done many interviews and has even written a book about being a serial killer's child i've seen that we've seen the interviews but i have not read the book so i i don't know but i imagine it's interesting In 1979, Dennis graduated with a degree in administration of justice. He was now the main worker in the family as Paula was with the children. He had much less opportunity to go out and troll for victims. He did continue breaking into houses and robbing items, however. Uh, He did that for the thrill, or it it could have been that he was going to try to do something more than that, but it, it it didn't work out. His children were growing up, and he was active in the church, and he also became a scout leader. So there wasn't a whole lot... Sorry about that. Sorry about that. There wasn't a whole lot um, from BTK until 1985, so he kind of went silent for about six years. Do you think? I mean, that's what you understand too, right? Right. At least there wasn't anything that had been, like, successful. Yeah, or that he reported himself. Right. So BTK's next victim, so, you know, years later, was one of his neighbors. 53-year-old Maureen Hedge worked at a coffee shop, so Dennis named this one Project Cookie. Her address also had a six in it, which was a multiple of three. So remember, we talked about how he had this thing with threes. Um, Since she was so close, Dennis was able to figure out her work schedule pretty easily. If she had a dog or she lived with anyone, he could tell all this because she, she was in his neighborhood. He and his family would actually walk by, and at times, she would be out in her garden, and they would wave and say hello to each other. So on April 26th of that year, Dennis went to help set up scout camp, but he left early. He then drove to the bowling alley and ordered a beer. Eventually, he took a cab to his neighborhood, feigning drunkenness, like he said he poured a beer all over him so it would smell, and got out near Maureen's house. Um... He cut her phone line and snuck into the house. It turned out she was not yet home, but soon Dennis heard a car door slam. 
Sorry, my cat is making a lot of noise. I'm okay, sorry, I had to let my cat out. She was um, very intensely wanting to hang out. So I'm going to pick right back up where I was. So we heard a car door slam after he was in the house. Um, and it turned out she was uh, not by herself. She had a male companion. So old Dennis would have jumped out then and there. Consequences be damned. Remember, he just would, like, not... He would just go for it back then. Um, but this... But Dennis, over time, had learned to control himself, and he actually waited inside the house until her friend left. He then waited a little longer to be sure that she was in bed and most likely asleep. He snuck into her room then and turned on the lights in her bathroom. This woke her up, and she screamed. Dennis jumped on her and strangled her with his hands. I just, I can't imagine how terrifying it would be to wake up with a person in your room like this. I can't fathom the fear that this poor woman probably had all of his victims, all victims in general. It literally makes me sick thinking about it. Um, he, he wanted to kidnap her alive so he could put her in bondage and get pictures, but that did not happen. She ended up passing away, and Dennis, still not satisfied sexually, did still bind her and strip her. He then went to the kitchen to get a glass of water, which he sort of fancies his trademark. He's bragged about it. Like, I get a glass of water, and then I put it back. Um... And then he put Maureen's body into the trunk of her own car. He drove the car over to the church, the one that he was a part of, one that he was actually pretty high up in, and um, got her body inside. There he did take his pictures. He posed her in different positions and in various states of bondage. And when he was done, he took the body to a near, nearby ditch and dumped it there. He ditched the car, cleaned up the church, and then went back to scout camp as if nothing had ever happened. So, Courtney, this took a darker turn than his other victims. He really planned this one out, and the only thing that seemed to go awry was the fact that he accidentally killed her before he got his pictures. He never had taken a body from a house before. He had never left them outside in a ditch, and he had never brought them into his church. What do you think of this? Also, I just want to say that he references more than once about being proud about his trademark drinking glasses from the water and putting it back, and I... Honestly, every time I read it, I kept thinking of the wet bandits from Home Alone. How they would leave the water on. It was this trademark. Sorry, I just wanted to say that because that's what I thought of when I would read about this. That's what I thought of too. Really? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. um, so what I think is happening here is that Dennis has sort of been emboldened by his success at not getting caught so far. So he felt comfortable that I have to start moving towards sort of fulfilling his full fantasy you know, in his writings and drawings, as you mentioned earlier, you know, Dennis talked a lot about wanting to have a barn or a silo that he could turn into his own kind of torture chamber, you know, inspired by H.H. H. Holmes. Um, and so in the book that we are kind of basing most of this off of, um, he talks about scouting out some possible farms outside of town for places that he could use, um, but there weren't any, like, barns that were abandoned enough, if that makes sense. Um, so kind of all along, the ultimate fantasy included taking a victim to a secondary location. And since he didn't have access to an empty barn on a farm, um, he took her to his church, which is a familiar location where he would feel comfortable and safe. Can you also tell us a little bit about Dennis constantly finding patterns with the number three? Yes, absolutely. Um, there are actually many of Dennis's habits and behaviors, including the fixation on the number three, that lead me to suspect that um, he has obsessive compulsive disorder. Now, 
a lot of people think of OCD and picture just like a germaphobe neat freak, um, but there are many, many other ways that it can sort of present. Um, so just a little background on OCD. So there are two parts of OCD, the obsessive thoughts and then the compulsive behaviors. So the DSM-5, which is, you know, the diagnostic Bible for all mental health workers. Um, so they define obsessive thoughts as, quote, recurrent and persistent thoughts, urges, or images that are experienced as intrusive and unwanted, end quote. And these can be about a number of different, you know, subjects, including numbers, so like multiples of three, cleanliness, fear of something bad happening, and even sexual thoughts and images. Um, and, you know, we talked in the first two episodes about Dennis's age-appropriate or age-inappropriate, excuse me, like sexual thoughts and behaviors. Um, and I kind of wonder if these maybe started out as intrusive, obsessive thoughts. Um, and then that does occur in children sometimes, and it can be really disturbing. So, um, now the second part of OCD, of course, is the compulsive behaviors. So, these are defined in the DSM-5 as repetitive behaviors that the individual feels driven to perform in response to an obsessive thought or according to rules that must be applied rigidly. These behaviors or mental acts are aimed at preventing or reducing anxiety or distress or preventing some dreaded event, event or situation. However, these acts are not connected in a realistic way with what they are designed to neutralize or prevent, or they are clearly excessive, end quote. So, you know, common compulsions include things like um, repetitive hand washing, checking and rechecking, having lucky numbers, kind of etc. And so, in Dennis's case, there are a number of behaviors that I think could fall under the category of compulsions, including, you know, the meticulous way he organized and documented his days and projects. He kept, like, very, very detailed, you know, daily logs of everything that he did. Um, and then also, you know, his use of codes, um, which we will see more of in this, this episode. We'll talk more about that. Um, the specific pattern that he used in the identifying, stalking, and killing of his victims. So having to have those specific phases could be a compulsion. Um, you know, the contents of his hidey holes and the way that he chose to organize them and how he kept them. And, you know, even his participation in self-bondage could be possibly a compulsion, you know? And I think it's likely that he had obsessive images and urges to bind himself. Um, and the only way to, you know, satisfy this urge, which would grow in intensity and discomfort if you just ignore it, was to, you know, give into it. So I don't know if you've watched the series Girls. Um, I have on, not. On HBO, but they, I feel like they do a, there's a episode or two where the main person, Hannah, um, she suffers from OCD, and when she doesn't take her medication, which I think it's usually an anti-anxiety, right? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, she, it, I think it's a really good representation of what can happen to someone when they have OCD. You think of it as just like someone who's anal retentive, but it can be like, it can ruin your life if you don't, if you're not able to take care of it. 
you know. Right. It, it can, can be serious. take up your whole day. Right. You know, you might spend six hours, you know, reorganizing mm-hmm. your closet because the OCD says you have to. Right. And you're just or, not happy until it's perfect. So, I mean, it, it, I think that it doesn't get enough, in my opinion, enough um, awareness mental health wise, because I think it can be a really destructive disorder if not treated. So absolutely. A lot of people just think of it as like, oh, that sounds like a really helpful thing. Right. But it's not. Um, I myself have been um, diagnosed with OCD, not the compulsive part, but the obsessive thinking. And it can be really hard. I can't sleep because, you know, I think a lot of people could suffer from that when you just re over and over and over and over in your mind. Um, Mm -hmm. And you just need to learn ways to quiet that down so that you can function. And that can be really hard. Absolutely. So, okay. Thank you, Courtney. On September 16th, 1986, Dennis decided to kill someone during his lunch hour. So he was busy man after all, and he had social and familial obligations. So, you know, when else can one do this, but during lunch one day, Dennis spotted his next PJ, his project. She was a 28 year old mother named Vicki Wiggerly. I had to look that up because it's spelt weird, but it's Wiggerly. Dennis stalked her for about three weeks Can I just say that the thought of being stalked is terrifying? I know that Bundy also stalked his victims, and and it's probably much more common of an occurrence than we realize, and it seriously scares the shit out of me. Ever since, you know, we started this podcast and I really started diving into the research of these serial killers, I have been, like, more conscious of my surroundings, and when I take walks, I try to take different walks and different routines um, when possible, and again, that might just be, you know, my intrusive thoughts coming in and it's an irrational fear, but I don't know. Courtney, can you say anything that you want to add about this terrifying behavior that is stalking? Stalking really is terrifying, and... um you know, in a lot of ways, the laws in this country are not set up to protect people against talking. Right. Um, We've seen that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, I actually briefly had a stalker for a little while. And fortunately, it ended quickly and without harm. Um, but that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. You know, in my case, it was right after I moved to kind of this area. So I was... 23 at the time, living on my own in my own apartment. Um, And there was this guy who'd been helpful to me and my family when we were kind of moving in. And so I later recognized him as someone who frequently hung out kind of like at my neighbors. Um, So, you know, I would see him now and again in passing, saying, you know, hi and bye. And that's pretty much it. That was Mm -hmm. the extent of um, any involvement. Um, And then a few months later, I started getting flowers picked from the plants around the complex, Um, you know, first by my front door, then by my back door, then on my car. Um, And it was not really, like, threatening. Mm -hmm. Like, I wasn't scared because someone was giving me flowers, but I did feel uncomfortable that there was someone who both recognized my car and, you know, bothered enough to go around into the courtyard to get to my back porch. Mm Mm-hmm. So I reported it to the manager of the complex, and predictably, they said, it's probably just one of the young boys upstairs that has a crush on you, and then did nothing. Right. So then a few weeks later, you know, one night around 10, 11 p.m., I heard someone knocking on my door and, like, my front window repeatedly, and just wouldn't stop, and ignoring them wasn't working. So, you know, I got up, and 
I opened the door slightly with the chain still on, of course, um, you know, to ask them to go away. And it was this guy Mm -hmm. um, standing there going on and on about how beautiful I was and how seeing me gave him hope Mm. and about how he'd been arrested before and was trying to get sober. He was clearly high on what I assume is meth. Oh, mm-hmm. a lot of meth around here. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, then he handed me a Tupac CD that he had burned. Oh, well, one does come bearing gifts when one is stalking. Right. You know, and I mean, I was definitely scared of what yeah. he might do. He's mm-hmm. in the middle of the night and yeah. he's high, so it's really unpredictable. Um, and so I feel fortunate that I had training, you know, in crisis de-escalation and things like that. So I sort of immediately went into just like crisis mode and Mm -hmm. put that hat on, Um, you know, keeping him calm and a lot of like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, okay. Right. You know, letting him say his piece. And after about 15 minutes of rambling, I thanked him for the CD, told him I had to go to bed and closed the door. Um, And luckily he left at Mm -hmm. that point. So I called the apartment manager who again said they couldn't really do very much about what had happened, but they could like ban him from the property. Mm-hmm. And so then I called the police who kind of said similar things that, you know, they couldn't really do anything because it was the first time I had asked him to stop and leave mm-hmm. me alone. So there wasn't, he hadn't like violated that yet essentially. Right. Um, but they did take a statement mm-hmm. and then they left. Um, and so, you know, if, this, you know, response from law enforcement and current stalking, current stalking laws, like I sort of mentioned earlier, it's so common for the reaction to be like that. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's the reason why so many stalking cases end in murder. Right. Um, and so I know I got lucky, right? right? Within the next few days, this guy was seen on the property and was arrested for trespassing. Okay. And it turned out that he was undocumented and ended up... Um, being deported. Oh, wow. Back to Mexico. Well, then I guess you aren't being to worry about him anymore. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what, sorry, was your story done? Yes. That was the end of the story. Uh, thank you for sharing that with us. Mm -hmm. Um, I think what really frustrates me as a woman is that I can understand how you would be uncomfortable and alarmed, but I also understand that a lot of people's responses would be like, oh, you should be flattered. Mm -hmm. But if you feel uncomfortable because someone's invading your space, especially when you live by yourself, Mm -hmm. um, that person shouldn't do that. They should be like, okay, thank you, but I don't like this anymore. Leave me alone. And then when they keep coming around, it's not endearing. It becomes more and more fearful. And um, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad that you were okay and that it ended that way. I am too. Because, yeah, it does usually can take a turn, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, back to Dennis. In this, this is his, uh, this is something from the, oh, sorry, this is what Dennis said about stalking. In the stalking time frame, I parked at Indian Hills South parking lot, hidden in direct view. Thus, I could observe her coming and going at lunch. So on the day of his hit, Dennis decided to pretend to be a telephone repairman. He kind of already had the clothes since he worked at ADT, and he took, I mean, 
I don't know. This is back then. But he took a Southwestern Bell telephone logo from a phone book and taped it to his hard hat. <laughs> that, that was good enough. So when he approached the hat, the house, he had heard piano noises. So he named this project PJ Piano. He went to Vicky's doors, uh, side door and knocked, asking if he could check her telephone lines. So she let him in to do this, um, being the trusting person she was. And Mrs. Wagerly had a body, uh, excuse me, Mrs. Wagerly had a baby in a playpen and two large dogs in the backyard, which is almost more scary because she had two big dogs there. Um, and he still did this. He used a fake instrument on her phone, fiddling with it, um, pretending to do whatever he was saying he was doing. And then he pulled a gun on her, which of course made her really upset. She told Dennis that her husband would be home soon and for lunch and that he should just, you know, get out of there. And uh, what should she do about her baby? And, you know, she was just freaking out. He demanded that she go into the bedroom with him and he tied her up with a stocking. She was able to break free from the, this binding and she started fighting physically with Dennis. She scratched his nose and face, but eventually Dennis got the upper hand and strangled her with the stocking. He thought she was dead, but we all know how good Dennis is in determining death for his victims. Um, he then took three photos of her and rifled through her things, taking some souvenirs. When Dennis left, he stole the victim's car and headed away from the scene. He then passed Vicky's husband, who was on his way home from lunch. So really, she wasn't lying about that. He really was on his way home from lunch. Mr. Wagerly later recalled that he thought he saw his own car on the road driving away. When he got home and discovered what had happened to his wife and saw the car gone, he knew he had driven past his wife's killer. I mean, can you believe that? It's insane. The police, in this instance, automatically assumed that the husband did it. I mean, a lot of the times the husband did do it, but they did not do anything they should have done. They didn't even take photos of the crime scene. They were just like, uh-uh, you did it. Um, Mr. Wegley was... Never officially charged, but his re reputation was ruined. Everyone thought that he was a wife killer. And, you know, it was a tragedy. And selfish-ass Dennis, you know, doing what he wanted to do on his lunch break. So, you know, most homicides are committed by somebody who knows and is close to the victim. Um, and women are most likely to be killed by an intimate partner. So I could see why that was the automatic assumption, um, you know, by the police. Most definitely, but they should have taken some photos and done, like, treating it like a crime scene. Right, actually investigate. Right. Um, and plus, she probably had, you know, defensive wounds, and her husband didn't have any, you know, marks on him. But Dennis did. She got him pretty good, actually. She probably had DNA under her fingernails. Probably. So after this murder, Dennis continued to troll for new PJs, new projects. The following were projects that did not work out, luckily for them. So these were the names of them. PJ Sweet Roll, PJ White, PJ Woof, PJ Salt, PJ Mother, and PJ Bell. PJ Bell was actually selected for a hit, and Dennis was in her home for a long time, but she must have been out of, been out of town because she never came home. So he ended up just robbing her of some lingerie and leaving. To help with his urges during this time, Dennis' self-binding went to a further level. He started to dig graves in the ground where he wrapped himself up like a mummy and took pictures, most likely resulting in climax. In 1988, Dennis lost his job with ADT. It was a blow to his narcissistic ego that his wife was again the breadwinner. He realized that women in charge made him feel uneasy, and he would remedy that by Bind, or by binding them and causing helplessness in his imagination. He still had his grand imagination. During this time, serial killers were 
turning up in the news all over the place. So the Green River Killer was a hot topic, and it got even more so when Ted Bundy got involved offering to help profile the who you know who later would not be Gary Ridgway. Remember how Ted Bundy was like trying to prolong his life, so he's like, uh-huh. I'll help you figure it out. Um, Dennis did not understand why no one cared about BTK. Even in Wichita, he wasn't a big name, let alone a national name. When Anne Rule wrote her book, A Stranger Beside Me, great read, BTW, Dennis read it with great interest. He seemed to be fascinated by Ted Bundy, and even when Bundy was executed, Dennis was still envious of his notoriety. He was jealous of Ted Bundy, even in death, because everyone knew who he was and what he had done. Dennis finally got a job with the Census Department in 1989. It was a limited duration for like a year. This job um, allowed him to travel a lot and to stay overnight in hotels. Dennis enjoyed this time away as he could have what he called hotel parties. Basically, he did all of his bondage and camera work in a private place uh, where he didn't have to worry about being discovered. He could take with him his slick ads or his trophies from his crimes or his woman's clothing to dress in and have a grand old time. This is a quote. For bondage, I bondage. I used all kinds of gadgets on me. I had my favorite feminine clothes, the red bra from PJ Bell, the chemise from PJ Foxtail, jewelry from DeFowler, satin hose from PJ Prairie, colored pantyhose from so and so many slips, panties, wigs, masks of different types, much like Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs. A good book and movie for a motel party. Ew. Dennis was doing more and more auto. Auto-erotic asphyxiation. He had a couple of close calls and one time lost his handcuff key and had to cut himself out of his cuffs. I guess he had to like run out of the hotel with very little clothes on to his truck to get us all. He would videotape himself and then he would watch himself work and masturbate to himself. Um, I guess I'm a little bit envious of, you know, how hot he thinks he is, you know, because we all have like body issues. Dennis didn't seem to have those. Right. I mean, and <laughs> I guess wonder if that's sort of part of that narcissism. Of, Maybe. You know, who better to well, be modeling these things than him? Right. I remember, I mean, in Silence of the Lamb, Buffalo Bill definitely was in love with himself. Right. There's that famous line that, well, I do me, you know, mm-hmm. fill in the blank. But, yes. Well, in 1990, Dennis again was unemployed because, you know, that was a limited job. And he seriously was contemplating suicide. He imagined it. He imagined um, asphyxiation from an exhaust pipe or a gun or other things. He also said it would be easiest if he could just walk away and disappear forever. He knew that his family would not get life insurance if he did kill himself, and this is what he said stopped him from doing the act. He said after a day or two, he no longer felt this way. It might have been the love of his family or self-preservation, or you know maybe just something else just distracted him, and that caused the shift. That caused the shift in his mood. So, Courtney, anything you want to say about this despondency? Is this typical of narcissists? I just assumed they were too selfish to contemplate or attempt suicide. Um, So it's actually quite common for people with NPD to experience depression and suicidal ideation in response to kind of what we would think of as like an injury to their ego, um, like being criticized or shamed or losing their job, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, And so for someone like Dennis... So, you know, for someone like Dennis, who thinks that he's just, you know, the best thing since sliced bread, it would be very shameful to lose a job and, you know, his standing as the provider for his family. Um, So this would be definitely an ego injury. 
That being said, you know, narcissists are less likely to actually make suicide attempts. Um, but when they do, they usually, you know, use a more catastrophic kind of means. So they'll think about it a lot, but they're less likely to do things like try and overdose or, you know, cut their wrists or things like that. Um, so, so it takes a lot for them to get to that point of actually acting on it. Do you think it's partially um, to get attention? Like, are they the type of people that might talk about it just to get someone to, oh, don't do that. Your your life is worth living or no, they're um, quiet about it. They'd probably be quiet about it, I think, because okay. it can be viewed as so negatively. Right. It could be viewed as a failure. Right. Exactly. Okay. okay. In January 1991, Dennis's final project was known as PJ Dogside because there were dog kennels near the property. Her real name was Dolores Davis, and she was 62 years old. Dennis waited until she had finished reading that evening and broke in around 11 p.m. He handcuffed her and removed the phone cord and proceeded to strangle her with a pair of her own pantyhose. He then wrapped her in a blanket, put her in the trunk of her own car, and then drove that car to KDOT Lakes, KDOT Lakes, and left her body on the shore in the bushes. After he had done some switching of cars, he drove back to the lake, wrapped her body in plastic, and put her body into now his car. He drove to a bridge and put her there, hidden, so he could come back later and take pictures and play with her body. He then went to the scout camp, where he made breakfast for all the kids that were participating. And the next day, after evading arrest from a cop that was talking to anyone that seemed suspicious due to a recent crime probably Mrs. Davis, but he wasn't sure. He went back to Mrs. Davis and put a mask on her face that he had purchased at a store to make her look more feminine. He then posed her and took pictures. She was not found for several days. Um, in the book that we have been referencing, Dennis said he wasn't sure at first if she was a male or female because she had very short hair, so I imagine that's why he got the mask. In May 1991, Dennis did get a new job as a compliance officer with the city, and during his time with the city, he grew more and more agitated that BTK did not get the same level of coverage as so many other serial killers. So right now, Jeffrey Dahmer was the big new name in the news, and it really irked him that there was so little said about him. He was still out there. He hadn't been caught. How was there not more about him? Courtney, can you tell us a little bit about narcissistic immunity and how it pertains to Dennis? Absolutely. Yeah, so we touched on this a little bit in the last episode, uh, but narcissistic immunity is the belief that people with narcissistic personality disorder have that they are in some way immune from any and all consequences of their actions. You know, it ties in with that belief that they're special, are above everyone else, and that the rules just don't apply to them. So with Dennis, at this time, you know, his success at avoiding detection and arrest so far had just solidified this belief that he won't get caught because he is, you know, too good at it. Um, but then this, in return, prompts him to make uh, bigger and bigger risks, right? So to taunt the police and the public through the media. Um, and, you know, at the same time, he believed that he would never get caught. But on the other side of the narcissism it made him crave recognition and admiration desperately and he wanted that attention that he believed he deserved okay well then dennis again went off the grid for many years although he continued with his projects none really worked out during this time yeah so you know 30 years later 20 right years later. yeah i mean he could have just gotten away with everything everyone assumed that he had either moved or died btk 
I mean. Yep. So in January of 2004, a Wichita Eagle reporter named Hearst Lavinia, kind of a cool name, put out an article of the 30-year anniversary of the Otero murders, you know, the first four that he had done. Two months later, the reporter got a letter with three Polaroids in the envelope. The pictures were of Mrs. Wagerly, and they were not police photos because, remember, the police didn't take any photos. So... The letter had also um, said that BTK, or the letter also had BTK at the top of the page, along with a series of letters that didn't make sense to the police. It was some code. Um, This prompted the Eagle to run an article saying that BTK had claimed credit for his eighth murder. And now the national media started to also run the story. In May of that year, Dennis sent another package to Cake TV, K-A-K-E TV, that contained a a word puzzle. The puzzle was deciphered by law enforcement. They bu- the puzzle was deciphered by law enforcement, but they were unsure what the message meant. In June 2004, a random person on his way to work found a package taped to a stop sign. It was labeled BTK Fieldgram. In the package were some drawings of women in bondage and some chapter names for a book that was finally being written about BTK by a local author. The gist of the letter was about a long history of sexual fantasy of torturing females and included information on how he selected the Oteros for his victim victims. Dennis explains that this patch, that this package was very symbolic. This is a quote. So first in Kansas and the stop sign was stop and look people of Kansas. The pole was the male symbol. I picked a number three type date attached the package on June 12th, six to 12 refer to threes. The package was wrapped in plastic and duct tape, a symbol of bondage and staple items in BTK hit kits. I'm rolling my eyes. I mean, for is there sake. anyone who's not? <laughs> Good gosh. July 17th, 2004, a plastic bag in the bottom of a library book return uh, box was found. BTK was on the package. There were five pieces of paper inside and a BTK flashgram. There was a picture of an adult male in bondage. A two-page story entitled Jakey was inside. This story was about the death of a 19-year-old named Jake Allen who was a high school valedictorian and who was very beloved but had a bondage fetish and may have been homosexual. Jake was found dead bound to a railroad tracks in Texas town and it was ruled a suicide. So this was something that really happened. Right. Um, but Dennis was implying that he had been the one that lured Jake out to the tracks through online chat on online chats and convinced him to do the bad things to himself. This ended up not being true, but Dennis was playing his weird ass games with the police. He also insinuated in his correspondence that he did have new projects lined up for another hit. So Dennis sent another package on October 22nd um, that a UPS driver found. And this package contained more stories and weird shit. Another package was found in December. This package had Nancy Fox's driver license and a doll with the hands bound. He was calling news stations claiming to be BTK, but he wasn't taken seriously. He called in a bomb threat that actually was taken seriously, but there was no bomb. He sent postcards with the return addresses of victims' houses. He started leaving notes on cereal boxes throughout the day because he was claiming to be a serial killer. One of the cereal boxes was found at a Home Depot, and the police were able to use security cameras to see that the perp that drove that dropped the box off drove a dark SUV. So this was like their first real lead. Um, some they at least knew what kind of car, sort of, that this uh, BTK was driving. 
In this box note, BTK asked the cops if they could trace him with a floppy disk. He wanted to try that as communication. If he cannot be traced by the disk, then the cops should put an ad in the newspaper that says, Rex, it will be okay. The police did as they were asked and assured BTK that he could not be traced by a floppy disk. They lied. Thank the baby Jesus. I am sick of this guy and his codes and his weird words and his patterns. And literally, I'm just pissed off researching this long and hard on this doucher. Courtney, can you just tell them how they caught this dingus? Yes, I get it. And I am glad that I have not had to talk about him as much as you have in these past few weeks. So, happy to wrap things up. So Dennis believed the police when they said they couldn't trace a floppy disk. You know, here's that narcissistic immunity again, mm-hmm. right? And so he why said... Why would to, he believe them? I'm sorry, why... I don't know. Okay, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So he sent a disk that contained a note along with three index cards of instructions. It didn't take investigators long to trace the IP address embedded on the disk to Grace Lutheran Church, which, with the last sign-in on that computer being somebody named Dennis... So, a simple Google search of church members led them to a staff page on the church website with a picture and name, Dennis Rader, church president. They immediately drove by his house and saw that he had a dark SUV, specifically a Jeep, in his driveway. And they just kind of knew that they had found their man. They just needed, you know, one more solid piece of evidence um, to kind of get that probable cause Mm -hmm. to get a warrant. And so what they were really hoping for was DNA. So while keeping Dennis under surveillance, investigators tried to find a way to get a DNA sample without alerting him, and they decided to try and get a familial sample instead, so someone that he's related to. They ended up learning that Dennis's daughter had received medical services at a public university health center, specifically a pap smear and cervical biopsy, which, for some reason, the lab still had the samples, um, and so police got a warrant and compared her sample of DNA to the DNA found on some of the victims, and it was a familial match. So, okay, just a little side note here. I want to talk for a minute about how absolutely horrible I think this method of getting DNA was. I know they had a warrant, but this just seems like a straight-up HIPAA violation to me. Um, For those of you who may not know, um, the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act is a law that was created in 1996 to make it illegal for healthcare providers to share a patient's private health information without their consent. That's very simplified, of course. Um, And now there's this poor woman you know, Dennis's daughter, who not only has had her privacy violated when the police took her sample, but then had to hear all about how they got the DNA from her sample all over the news and in court. And I know they were desperate, but I feel like there just are many more ethical ways that they could have gone about obtaining a sample from her or from Dennis himself that would have given probable cause to arrest him. Trisha, your thoughts on this? So as a healthcare worker and any healthcare worker, we have had HIPAA pounded into our brain since 1996, right? Like every year you have to do HIPAA training and everyone knows, you know, like, so at our clinic, for example, we have like noise um, makers basically like, cause we, you don't even want people to hear conversations that you're having with someone else on the phone or whatever. Like patient privacy is always paramount 
into, you know, when you're in this industry. It's a huge deal. Right. It is a huge deal. You can be sued for it. You can lose your job over it. You can lose your license over it if you violate HIPAA. Mm-hmm. You can um, be fined. Yeah, there's thousands all of dollars. sorts of things you can yeah. do. So I do agree with you, Courtney. I'm I'm not sure how this information was leaked to the press um, on what type of sample it was, but it was humiliating for Carrie, and she has said that um, that this and that's where I think the fault lies, right? Whoever told the press. So per the HIPAA rules, the police did not illegally obtain the sample because as with every piece of legislation or law, there are loopholes. And this is actually from the HIPAA website, which describes some of the instances where it is okay to obtain PHI or protected health information without patient's knowledge or permission. So for law enforcement purposes, covered entities may disclose Covered entities may disclose protected health information to law enforcement officials for law enforcement purposes under the following six circumstances and subject to specified conditions. Number one, as required by law, including court orders, court ordered warrants, subpoenas. That's what I'm sure they had, right? Mm -hmm. And administrative requests. Two, to identify or locate a suspect, fugitive, material witness, or missing person. Again, that would apply. In response to a law enforcement official request for information about a victim or suspected victim of a crime, four to alert law enforcement of a person's death. Yada 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 yada. There's a there's a shit ton on there. So, but I'm not going to bore you anymore. So, in this case, the breach was not the sample seizure, but whoever made it known to the public. I mean, they could have just said a match was made through familial DNA. They did not have to bring up how they got the familial DNA, what kind of you know sample it was, because that's humiliating. And at this, I know that we're talking about it now, but she's come out with it already, so I don't feel so bad. Like, <laughs> seeing where right. it comes from now, she has acknowledged it. She has said she's embarrassed. She has also said she would have given it willingly, you know, from, like, a normal yeah. swab, mm-hmm. right? But whatever. What's done is done. They finally got it. Yes. Off the soapbox now. Right. So anyway, with the familial DNA match, police now had enough evidence to make an arrest. So they knew from their surveillance of him that he came home for lunch every day, and they set up a roadblock to catch him in his vehicle a few blocks from home. This plan worked perfectly, and he was apprehended without incident on February 25, 2005. And really all he said on scene to the arresting officers was, can you tell my wife I won't be home for lunch? Ever the family man. Of course. He later said that, quote, If I'd had time to act, I would have shot my way out and escaped, like a movie superhero. (laughs) So, during that initial interrogation, Dennis tried to be coy and deny his involvement. But once he learned that they had DNA tying him to the murders, he realized that it was over, and he confessed to being BTK. He would spend 30 hours over the next two days telling detectives all about his crimes— his processes, where to find his hidey holes, and everything else they needed to know to solve all 10 murders. And then, prior to his first court appearance, Dennis underwent psychological evaluation by a Dr. Robert Mendoza, which was ordered by his defense attorneys to determine if he was competent to stand trial, or if they could plead not guilty by reason of insanity. So... Dr. Mendoza described Dennis as being depressed and tearful during the assessment, and he'd made vague suicidal statements, but denied that he was going to follow through with anything. 
And so ultimately, the assessment found that Dennis Rader was competent for trial. Um, and he was diagnosed at that time with narcissistic personality disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and hypergraphia, which refers to a person's tendency to provide over-elaborative descriptions when writing. So, at his initial court hearing in May 2005, Dennis did not respond when asked for a plea, so it was automatically entered as not guilty, and a trial date was set. However, when his trial date came around on June 27th, he decided to change his plea to guilty. The judge accepted his plea, and in the courtroom, Dennis was asked to share the details of each of the 10 murders he was charged with. You can watch video of this on YouTube. We did. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of surreal, you know, as he, he just talks in this very flat, matter-of-fact way about mm-hmm. torturing and killing 10 people. Now, during the time frame when the murders occurred, the state of Kansas did not have the death penalty, so Dennis was not eligible to receive that sentence, even though by 2005, they did have it. Um, So he was sentenced to 10 life sentences, with a minimum of 175 years before he could be up for parole. So he's he's never getting out. Yeah. Um, Good. Yeah. He was transferred to El Dorado Correctional Facility, where he remains in solitary confinement for his own protection. He is currently 77 years old, and he will die in prison. I wonder if he hates being in solitary confinement because he can't brag to other people about what he did. Probably. He gets no attention there. No attention. Yeah, because the person that wrote this book, like, they couldn't even get, like, a face-to-face. Like, it was all letters and phone. Yep, exactly. So, good. Hope he's miserable. Well... That was a long ride. I'm glad that we're done with him. Yes. Way to pick him, Courtney. I didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) It was like a rabbit hole going through this case. I mean, I'm glad I learned a lot. You know, it's funny to me. I always, um, you you hear or you watch these murder investigations and they always say they didn't care. He had no emotion. Like with Dennis, like he just at the trial or whatever it was, the hearing was like blah, 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 monotone. Duh, they don't. Like, I don't expect a murderer, a serial killer, to give a shit about their victims. Like, I'm not looking for that. It doesn't surprise me anymore. It actually surprises me when people are surprised by it. They're just, they don't care. I mean, bottom line. Right. And I think with Dennis Rader, you know, it was such a... The reason people were so surprised is because he was really good at faking it. Mm -hmm. You know, church leader yeah he was the president of that church yeah boy scout leader you know family family man man, worked Mm -hmm. for the city like Mm -hmm. he was in a long-term marriage which she got divorced by the way right (laughs) yeah and um like we said earlier he would have gotten away with this i'm sure of it if it hadn't been for his narcissistic ego getting in the way yep absolutely if he just left it alone and said nothing in 2004 Mm mm-hmm He'd probably still be a free man. Exactly. So after all we've learned of of Dennis, do you have any final diagnosis on his mental state? Do you agree with what they said, or do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, I generally agree with the psychologist who assessed him, mm-hmm. um, although I would maybe add a couple other things. Um, you know, definitely narcissistic personality mm-hmm. disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, and some psychopathic traits. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. 
Um, and, you know, his, his need for attention and recognition, as you just said, for these crimes, they ultimately are what led to his downfall. Right. You know, and kind of at the end of the day, I'd say, yes, Dennis Rader was addicted to murder. Yeah, and addicted to attention. And I mean, addicted to himself. <laughs> addicted. Kind of. Yeah, he actually was. I think he loved himself. I wish we all could, you know, never mind. Um, so I'm picking the next one. Yes. And I have to say that the one that I had up was one that was suggested to me by a listener, but I have to put them, I can't do it. it. Dennis took a lot out of me and the one that was suggested to me by a listener would take even more out of me. So my clue is that this person, um, did the job while on the job. Ooh. Yeah. Very mysterious. Yeah. So there's that. So thank you guys for listening to our crazy long um, Dennis Raider tale. I hope that we gave you some information maybe you didn't know about because it was a long journey. Thank you for traveling it with us. And be safe, and we will see you next Tuesday. Bye. Bye.